Hey, what's good, packaging family? Welcome back to another episode of the People of Packaging podcast. I'm so excited to bring to you this episode, this interview I got to do with Marion from Archer Ruse. You are going to want to tune in and share it, like it, subscribe it, do all of that fun stuff. I want to talk to you about an organization that is also near and dear to my heart, which is the Institute of Packaging Professionals, the IOPP. Yeah, you guessed it. The People of Packaging podcast is down with the IOPP. Listen, if you are looking to make deeper industry connections, have deep industry reach, strong peer-to-peer connections, gain some more packaging knowledge, I want you to go to IOPP.org. That's IOPP.org and check out their membership options. If you are not a member, I strongly suggest that you do it. They are dedicated to creating networking and educational opportunities that help packaging professionals succeed. So join up with the central unifying force in packaging that is benefiting not only its members, the packaging community, but let's be honest, because packaging is so critical, when we do this together, we are benefiting society and benefiting the world. So go on over there, check out their membership options, when you do sign up, you can say that you were referred by Adam Peak. We get points and it makes me feel all warm and fuzzy inside. And so that would be greatly appreciated. Speaking of feeling warm and fuzzy inside, by the way, this is how Archer Roots Wine makes me feel. I love it. I'm so excited to share with you its story and their passion for packaging. So let's get to this interview with Marion from Archer Roots. All right, so I am here virtually. I'm really excited, honestly, at some point in time to do these interviews face-to-face because I think there's probably a different dynamic, but I've done like 50 of them on Zoom. So we're just, we're here, Marion. This is what we're doing. Um, well, for okay. the I hope that not only we're doing them, you know, face-to-face, but maybe we could even like take it with us on a chairlift since I know we both enjoy winter sports so much. That would be awesome to do an interview at snowbird on a chairlift or maybe like the gondola at snow basin that's a pretty long that's enough i think we could we could have a a robust conversation about wine packaging there that'd be fun i think it'd be perfect all right well let's make that happen in season five i love it we're in the fourth season here uh this is the people of packaging podcast i'm with marion leitner waldman and you are what's your official title at archer ruse I am the co-founder and chief feather ruffler, aka CEO at Archer Roos Wines. CFR. Exactly. CFR. So, all right. I like it. Uh, slash CEO. Um, and you say co-founder. So you have one, two, how many other founders? I have one co-founder uh, and that is actually my husband, David. The story for Archer Roos actually started around our dining room table. Uh, nice. Yeah. We wanted to create a wine brand that really we felt there was an empty space to build a brand that really felt connected to our values around quality transparency sustainability but in a format that fit your lifestyle so uh that's kind of where we we first cooked up archer roost and then we decided to introduce a new format while skiing snowbird actually in utah that's so cool that's how we decided to put wine in cans I'm, I'm pumped to talk about that. Uh, I'm also, if anybody from the state of Utah is listening, if there's any way that we can like 
ship wines to our house, uh, I would be super stoked because <laughs> that would be that would be fantastic. But for the meantime, uh, I, I I have them going to uh, my folks' house so that I can enjoy a wine in Colorado or my sister's house in California. But maybe maybe fingers crossed the we can marry the the origin story of starting in Utah on a chairlift to being able to just ship it here so that I can I can have some. I'm pretty I'm pretty excited about that. So state of Utah, let's go step it up. We got this. We can do this together. Um, that's great. And, and I loved I loved that story when we talked about that. And we're going to get into a little bit more of of the brand and what you're doing and how you're connecting all those dots and, and all that stuff. But let, uh, let's start. This is the people of packaging. And we like to talk about people. So, uh, you know, what? maybe just give us a quick rundown of besides being the co-founder and chief feather. I almost said ruffle featherer. Feather ruffler at Archer Ruse. Uh, you know, where do you live and how did you, how did you get into wine? Yeah, well, I was actually born and raised in New York City, uh, lived all up and down the East Coast and actually the world uh, before settling in Boston, Massachusetts with Flashman, my husband, my uh, baby boy and our little bear, who is not so little, he's 80 pounds of love, uh, our dog Flashman. Oh, and okay, got I wasn't I sure. I wasn't sure if you were trying to tell, like, if you named your child Flashman, which you know is fine. Um, but you went with you went with the dog, and I was like, "Do you have like a, an actual little bear? Like, maybe he he looks like a bear. Uh, awesome. It is it. You know, he's black and brown and uh, quite hulking. So his brother refers to him as bear as opposed to dog. Uh, got it's it. Very got it. But anyway, uh, I got into wine because I actually went and spent uh, a semester in Spain when I was in high school. And while I never had a drop of alcohol before I turned 21, I lived with the family of winemakers and they really introduced me to wine. And I've always loved to tell stories. And I think the thing that really drew me to wine was how it really is a story about a place and a history and the people behind it. And I, I just became obsessed with it. Uh, and I really like, I, I did study wine, um, somewhat, but to me, wine's always been a very subjective adventure about learning what I like and what I don't like and really understanding the pieces of history behind it. Uh, and that's really informed my own kind of wine journey. And so, but there were certain things that always frustrated me. And one of them was just that I would often have a great bottle of wine and then I could never find it again. And I just thought there were great brands in craft beer and craft spirits. Why couldn't we build a craft wine brand that was widely available to consumers, but really made a promise to them about the level of quality that they would get. And that really represented what their values were. Yeah, that's awesome. And I love, I, I love that about wine also. Um, I, so, you know, I kind of, I joked before we got on that my official name is Reverend Edward Adam Peake. Uh, but I, I am an ordained Southern Baptist minister. I've mentioned that before in the podcast. And what's interesting is there is there is only one food mentioned in the Bible that is promised to be in heaven, and it's in fact wine. Jesus tells his disciples, "Hey, the next time we drink of the vine, you'll be with me in paradise." So wine is the only thing that's guaranteed to be in heaven, and I'm here for it. Like, you know, I'm I'm ready. I'm, I'm starting early. I'm bringing heaven to earth through just really good, uh, you know, wine consumption. And I, I think it's I think it's great. 
Um, and I love the story component behind it, right? Like it's, it, it's different in that it does seem like there are, now we are connecting stories obviously through the, the craft beer world and the craft spirits world, but it's always seemed to be connected to the wine industry. And, it, you know, from the, just people that I've known, like the, the story of the grape and, you know, how it, it needs to go through a certain amount of you know, struggle or whatever it is to really unearth these certain flavors and these different flavors. I, I don't know. I mean, I'm not a wine, what is it? Connoisseur, sommelier, whatever the, what's the phrase? Or connoisseur, wine connoisseur, yeah. sommelier. But yeah, but, but what you're hitting on is also what makes wine so cool, which is that there's this huge locality movement in craft beer right now, but the, and there's some delicious offerings out there. But the thing that's kind of interesting is that all those ingredients often come from somewhere else. So there's an emphasis on locality, but you're getting your hops from Greece and you're getting maybe your fruit from Idaho, even if you're a New England brewery. Um, the thing about wine is that you might be drinking it and it's made somewhere else, but it's an intensely local offering. Like the grapes, when, when it's a good wine, really tell the story to your point of the struggle of the earth. Like you can tell whether it's volcanic soil versus more fertile soil versus you know, mountain soil uh, or limestone, all of these take on slightly different dimensions and flavors. And you don't have to be fancy to kind of pick those up. Uh, you just kind of need a, a, a basic rudimentary knowledge around it. But that's also something that not to kind of segue to the packaging, but one of the things that we felt really strongly about that the wine industry does a great job of eye-catching labels but they do a bad job about telling the consumers what's in the bottle. It's kind of like a Russian roulette a little bit um, or a, you know, winemaker's roulette, however you want to put it. But that's actually why on our packaging, we always have the uh, people, place, profile, and practice hmm. so that even if you've never had archers before, you can turn the can around and you get that story uh, because I think it is so important to, why we're attracted to the wines that we are. You said people, place, profile, and practice. That's awesome. Uh, we're going to, I want to go through those here in a second um, and, and really kind of dig into the packaging uh, for, for your brand. I do need to talk about something very, very important here, um, which is that uh, you are the first person I've talked to that has a cricket club on your LinkedIn profile. And it's not important for anything other than the fact that selfishly I have cricket stories that I've never been able to tell on the podcast. And so I just thought, why not, why not dive into that? If we're talking about people and place and a profile, you know, you, you have it on your profile and you're a person, where did you play cricket? What was this thing that got you well, into cricket? I studied at the university of Edinburgh and, uh, I actually was studying political theory there for some, you know, for time abroad as one does in, in college. And I really wanted to meet people. And I found out that I had made a really good friend while I was over there. And we rec we realized that we were only hanging out with other Americans and that was boring. So we wanted to get to know, you know, the natives, uh, if you will. And so I had a, we had a very, very rudimentary knowledge of cricket and, my dad told me that it was very similar to baseball, which heads up, it's totally not. Um, Definitely that's all not. Good. Um, and so we decided we should join uh, the cricket team. And I was sold 
because if there's anything that I love, you know, more than, you know, just general activities and hanging out with cool people, it's general activities, cool people and snacks and mm. cricket has a, you know, you actually break for tea time or cocktails and a snack. So, uh, I was sold once I, once I learned that, but you, I will. Did you, that. did you like, it's like both teams will just like break for snacks. Basically it was awesome. I Is mean, it all day? Cause I have never, I've never, I've never played like all day cricket. It's long. It's definitely long. They can't, there are games that go on for days. Uh, Right. But ours, ours did not go on for that long, largely because they had two Americans on their team who had no idea where they were going and what they were doing. And so uh, we were not a very successful team, I would wager. But what we made, what, what we lacked in skill and fundamental knowledge of the game, we more than made up in our ability to snack. Yeah, yeah, that's, uh, you know, it's funny. I just got my daughter a t-shirt and it says, I'm just here for the snacks. Literally, I just bought it for her like last week because she's constantly yeah. like, can I have a snack? Can I have a snack? Can I have a snack? And she wears it all the time now. Um, we actually were going to go to Top Golf, and she's like, I just want to go hang out and, and, and eat. And so she wore her like, I'm just here for the snack shirt. It was perfect. So that would have been that would have been great. Um, and, you know, we do have an international, a little bit of an international presence. Uh, and uh, so, you know, to the to the the people in where India and England and the UK uh, apologies for a couple of Americans talking horribly uh, naive about cricket, but I have twice in my life, only twice, and it involved no snacks. And I'm now disappointed in my cricket experience that I had no snacks and no cocktails. But one was I was in a, I was in LA and I got invited to go to a park with my buddy. And, uh, and at the time, his friend's girlfriend and his band. And so I was like, all right. And they're like, we're going to play cricket. I'm like, I don't even know what this is, but his girlfriend was from Australia and his band just was into weird things, probably snacking. Um, and so we played cricket for, for a little bit in this park. And the, the band is, this was before they really, before they got big, but it was foster the people. And so mm. we just, we just got, I got to play cricket with foster the people for a minute in, in LA, so which cool. was super random. Like, uh, and, then, and then my other cricket story was actually when I was in India and uh, I, I do some work over some humanitarian, just nonprofit work there. And I was in an orphanage and they were like trying to teach me how to play cricket. And you're absolutely right. It's nothing like baseball. Like I grew up playing baseball and they're trying to teach me the rules. So I think they were playing nice and they were, is it bowling? They were bowling yep. to me. Uh, one of the, one of the high school kids and he threw it and I, I parked it. Like I just, I, I crushed this ball and I and we lost it I hit it out of the orphanage so I I had to go I had to go buy them another. I bought oh, them quite a few because I was like oh the game's over now like they're like we're done it's it's like that te that kid from the kids from Sandlot you know when they lose their baseball exactly fence. the dog got it uh, uh babe was it babe the the dog babe yes yeah yeah and Benny the Jet was nowhere to be seen and yeah it was tough but we, we, we persevered. Well, that's, that's cool. Um, I love that you connected it to snacks and uh, it's really one of the powers of sports, right? It's similar to wine. Like they, there's, there's a connection that can be made between sports and, you know, um, even just gathering for sports and, and being able to have a, a good drink or a good meal. And, you know, just, I think that's something that we're all trying to 
reconnect with now as we can, you know, hopefully really emerge solidly from, from COVID um, is, is reconnecting to just live events and community and snacking together and drinking together and eating together and laughing and smiling, you know, without masks and all these things that I think we always, or I at least took for granted. Um, and, and I'm, I'm ready, like I'm ready for it all to come back. I, I hear you 100%. There's something so primal. I mean, we've been fermenting, you know, fruit for thousands of years. We've been gathering to watch feats of strength, you know, for thousands of years. Um, we are social creatures. We were not meant to live in isolation. So mm-hmm. I, I, I think that uh, I don't think I'll give, I'll take for granted hugging anyone for the rest of my life. That's for sure. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. Um, you know, another thing that I think we we were talking about a little bit beforehand also that that does kind of dive back into packaging and, and your brand and, and wine that that COVID has really impacted has been, you know, sort of shopper behavior and how we are interacting with brands. So, you know, we're, we we I, I hope that we don't really change too much how we interact with each other, though. I know like germaphobes who are like, if I don't have to shake another hand, I'm good. Like we'll just do the elbow thing or the fist pound. But I think brands are really starting to be transformed into how they go to market. And I would venture to guess because the, you know, the wine industry for so long has been, it's, it's almost like a, like you kind of described it like a journey, like, oh, I, I've got to go find, it's a hunt almost to just go like find the wine that you really like. Whereas, you know, you guys, it sounds like have said, no, we, we want to, I love that democratize access to fine wines. I think that's awesome. So, um, you know, how has that even changed? Well, how long has your brand been around and how have you seen COVID really start to change the, the questions that you're, you're asking? Man, such great, like chewy questions. Um, so we launched in 2016 in a really kind of traditional way. We, we launched via, we had a distributor and we went out and we sought to build our brand in bars and restaurants, which always surprises people that we actually did that because, um, you know, people don't think of canned wine as being a on-premise product, but, uh, we actually really solved a need for restaurateurs Uh, by providing them better one-to-one inventory management, eliminating waste, uh, and really having the perfect pour every time. And so uh, that was kind of our our trajectory. And then uh, COVID hit. And, you know, by that point, we had really built up a lot of distribution across uh, 20 states, and we were launching on JetBlue. uh, And COVID really challenged our business to say the least, um, mm-hmm. because we really had to rethink, uh, you know, how to get our brand out there because our traditional avenues were closed to us. Um, but I think because during this time I had actually just had a baby. <clears throat> and so I was really going through a questioning everything around life and like, what did I know to be true? Because I think that kind of what happens to you once you start to emerge from that fog of the newborn is you think, man, I, I thought I had things figured out, or at least I pretended to, and now everything, I'm questioning everything. And it kind of allowed me to approach our business with an open mind. And what I recognized was that 
there was a lot of things that uh, had been waiting in the wings, like the digitalization of alcohol, um, that for one reason or another had really been very slow to adapt. And that was largely because of the three-tiered system, which for those of you on the call who don't know this, a supplier cannot sell directly to a retailer. They have to go through this middleman called a distributor. Uh, and that's called the three-tiered system. But what COVID and wine clubs have started to do is allow for people to ship directly to the consumer. But also retailers during COVID got really savvy about the fact that people didn't want to spend a lot of time in stores. Mm -hmm. uh, so how could they, how could they evolve and, and meet them? And that became curbside pickup or um, apps like Instacart really stepped into the void that allowed you to shop for your groceries online and then have them delivered directly to you. And as we were sort of watching these shifts in the behavior, we realized that there was a really interesting opportunity because we were so young and we were so nimble that we could actually completely rethink the way that we go to market uh, to our consumers. And we could lean into this digitalization of alcohol and really recognize that it doesn't have to be about putting your brand in every single store, which was the traditional way that people went out and built brands. Instead, you really needed to fix, find, you needed to understand who your consumer was and then put your brand, partner with those, um, with these digital retailers that are serving that particular consumer and lean in that way. Mm. And that also made me take a look at our packaging. Uh, you know, we really designed our packaging to stand out on the shelf. Um, but suddenly we realized it also needed to be tweaked so it could stand out online and really look good on a screen. But also without someone hand selling it, what were the elements about the packaging and the brand and the story that we could pick up and reinforce in this digital experience so that people would actually want to connect with our brand? And what first felt like a terrifying void and like all the all the rules had changed has quickly morphed into this is an extraordinary opportunity to communicate directly to the consumer in a way that hasn't happened with alcohol in this country since before prohibition. And, you know, now I, I really get up every day totally excited about thinking about how how we can put our brand in the hands of our consumers in the fastest way possible and in the most convenient ways possible. Yeah, that's, and, and did you feel because, you know, maybe fortuitously you had decided it's a hundred percent in cans. Is that correct? You're. Yep. We don't have wine. any bottles. We're all in cans and actually kegs. That's our, that was our on-premise offering as well. Got it. And so was that, um, was being in cans, did that make it easier to sort of quickly pivot to uh, the, the kind of the digitalization aspect of being able to now, you know, not only have something that is, is easy to see online, because a really small label, if you have a bottle and a, and a label and you're looking on your phone, whereas a can, you can have the full, almost the full experience. Did you, did you find that, the, that having that can was an easier way to pivot into e-commerce and ship? Or were there challenges around distributing your packages of cans, you know, kind of around, around the, um, is it the U.S. or do you guys sell internationally? Just the U.S. for now. Okay. Um, so I would say like, yes and no. So the yes part is that we're lighter, we're harder to break. 
Uh, so shipping posed less theoretical challenges. I think where the complications arose is that the infrastructure or in the, of the industry hasn't really cut up to culture. And that what I mean by that is that while consumers are really excited and ready to embrace cans, making sure that we had warehouse and logistics uh, operations that were set up to be able to fulfill cans was a challenge because so much of the way that warehouses are set up from a picking standpoint was actually to deal with glass bottles. Um, and so we did have to think through and do some modifications there. But I mean, ultimately, I think it's a winner because sustainability is really core to our brand. We, we really think about sustainability holistically from our interventions in the vineyard to our entire supply chain. And a lot of people don't realize this, but uh, seven, almost 70% of the carbon footprint of the wine industry comes from packaging. Hmm. And so when we also think about leveraging other and unique ways to put our products in the hands of our consumers, you know, the fact that our product is lighter, uh, I think, also still contributes to that sustainability story because you're not uh because weight often you know has a direct correlation to gas usage so all of these pieces kind of fit together to think through as we're remaking this industry and we need to remake it so that it's consumer centric we also need to remake it so that it's better for the earth in the long term yeah yeah i, I mean you know you've got a product that's literally coming from the earth and so making sure that the, you know, the, the inputs from the, you know, from the air and the soil stay, stay positive seems like an, an inherently good thing for the wine industry. And, you know, I'm, I'm pretty, and I think it's, I had not heard that stat, by the way, that 70% of carbon footprint comes from the wine industry. And it'll be interesting to start following some of the, no, no, sorry, 70% I mean, from, from packaging, sorry, 70% yeah. of carbon imprint from the wine industry comes from packaging, not that the wine industry is responsible for 70% of the carbon in the world. Yeah. That would be insane. Um, <laughs> China's like, hello. I know, right? Are you yeah. not paying attention? Even, you know, like I think food waste is like the third largest. Um, yeah. So yeah, I, I apologize for misspeaking there. No, that no, no, like, not at all. Someone's like, I Adam said. Start, Adam I didn't said, want to start any rumors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is what, this is what Adam Peak said on his podcast. It must be true. It's, it's, it's on the internet. It's true. Um, but there was, so like in 2020, Unilever announced that they were going to start applying uh, carbon labels to all of their products. And it would be really fascinating to see the wine industry start to do that and, and really drive people to start making decisions, not only based on the way that it looks, because let's be honest, we're still very visual, emotional creatures we're not going to get away from that and there is a level of emotion that comes from it there's you know we're also aesthetic we like to taste and feel and you know so that's always going to be a part of it but the sort of the intellectual combined with the emotional side of saying you know well this wine hasn't has a carbon impact of x and this one is y and so i'm going to choose x because it's lower i think will really along with price right that those are sort of the four things we've never really had a way of doing the carbon impact other than, you know, well, you know, aluminum weighs less than, than glass. And so here's sort of a, a weight analysis, but to know, like to, to be able to like pare it down to the exact amount that has been 
output versus something else, I think would be really awesome for the wine industry. Um, and would certainly, I would think, benefit brands like yourself who are already out in front of it. It just would require, uh, you know, some sort of uh, subjective analysis. But completely, um, I think it's a great idea because the other piece too is that there's both life cycle and end cycle. And so what a lot of people don't realize is that 60% of municipalities in the United States actually don't recycle glass at all. Mm-hmm. So that even if you're putting it in your recycling bin, that's often still going to the land in landfill. Um, And it's actually thanks to companies like Coca-Cola and Pepsi that aluminum is recyclable everywhere, right? Um, And it's just an interesting, I think that as our society goes through this reawakening, I think there's also a reckoning that needs to happen as we all take greater responsibility for some of these acts of God, Reverend Reverend Adam, that, you know, keep (laughs) happening, Um, and I, I think that us being more conscientious stewards of the, you know, this, this planet we live on is, uh, is part of that. hundred percent. Yeah. I, um, you know, I, it it would be, I, I don't know of any brands who are actively trying to do worse things for the environment. And I work with a lot of brands. And so it's good that, (laughs) <laughs> it's good. It's good that consumers are having the convert are, are, are pressuring, you know, we're getting some now top down, you know, sort of more depending on how you feel about it, but more like authoritarian pressure from governments are starting to, you know, either apply positive pressure in terms of, uh, you know, tax credits and things like that, or even negative, like extended producer responsibility, depending on how you want to view both of those things. But the, 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 it's very real right now, right? And and I think that every brand is and every industry is really feeling the pressure because we is the this is the most it's the fastest growth of the human population that the the Earth has ever seen, and there's really no stopping it right now. We're healthier, um, you know, even uh, even like post COVID, like we did a pretty amazing job when you think about compared to other pandemics of of really getting through it. You know what I mean? Like we're, we're, it's been a year and like, I'm vaccinated. Like, that's crazy yeah. to think about. Um, and, you know, medical technology and these advancements are just helping people stay alive a lot longer, which is awesome. But on the flip side of that, we're also creating a lot more waste and, and, and our resources are depleting. And so how are we going to do all of this together is uh, a conversation that's above my pay grade, but Bill Gates wrote a book about it. So I'm just going to keep reading that and see if I can help out there. Um, that's awesome. So let's, uh, part of part of this, when you're looking at your packaging is obviously the sustainability story, but maybe just talk us through the these four P's that you have on there, the, the people, the place, the profile, and the practice. What are each one of those things communicating on your packaging? And why was that so important to your brand? Um, because I would actually say that all of those have sustainability at their core. It's not sustainability isn't a thing that it's only like with packaging. It is, there's a totality to it, I think. And it sounds like you guys probably are doing a, a good job of communicating that. I would say communicating. Yes. We have a lot more work to do in order to really like show shore it up. Um, but that's, I think also because I'm pretty relentless in my belief system around this, which is that 
when you talk about sustainability, we do have to be holistic. So it is also like, I, I want to get to the point where I can tell stories about literally the people who are picking the grapes because they're not the winemakers. Right. And yeah. labor is definitely a piece of that, of the story that the wine industry doesn't talk about. Um, but to your point, uh, so our four P's are really our, they're core to the brand and the brand's DNA. So uh, people refers to who makes, actually really it's practice is how are the grapes grown? Uh, so we do low intervention methods, meaning we're, um, you know, organically grown and, or we're really trying to pick the most sustainable interventions possible uh, in order to grow our grapes. The second piece is about the people. So right now in this case, we're really referring to the winemaker. Uh, so who is the winemaker and what decisions are she or he making uh, to help bring our wine into existence? And once again, we're trying to really go for low intervention methods and that's key to our made without campaign. Uh, which is that we do no additives. Uh, and that's really core to kind of who we are. The third piece is, uh, you know, about the place. And so this kind of goes back to the essential, um, you know, story that I was saying at the beginning of the call about how wine is really like a postcard about where it's from. And it tells the story of just through its taste about the land and the people behind it. And so I, and I love to weave that in, into each one of our wines. And, you know, just as a quick example, uh, rosé, which, you know, is everybody's glug glug juice. Uh, most people don't realize that it's a rustic and ancient style of wine that was first invented by the Romans. And it's, it's, it was rather thought to be, you know, somewhat rudimentary because, uh, you know, it, you press the, the grapes with the skins and then you immediately remove the skins. And it wasn't until we really became, you know, refined the white wine making process that people learned not to even have the, the skins and the juice interact at all. So that's how we get rosés and orange wines. And I, I love little details about that. And so much of that is tied to the, to the particular place because then it was armies as they marched across you know, the Mediterranean that brought these different styles and techniques and commingled and all of that informs the place and the history and why, you know, rosé from Provence is a certain style versus rosé from Austria. Hmm. And then finally, we have profile and profile is really the taste. How does the wine taste? And we put that on there because it can get intimidating and confusing. Uh, when you are surfing that wine aisle to find something that you'll like. And so our kind of promise to our consumers is that, you know, we really go for a fruit forward style of wine. Um, you know, we, we don't have a lot of oak. It's very much about like natural, like naturally allowing the grape to express itself. Um, our wines are generally very dry. And, uh, and then we, that's when we really try to bring out, Hey, look, like, you know, this will have hints of strawberry or, uh, you know, our Prosecco is, you know, bubbly and effervescent and fruitful, you know, and fruity, as opposed to getting really deep into the tasting details that often you're like, why would I want to drink gravel? Like, explain to me what gravel tastes like. We're trying to steer away from that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but all of this is really just about utilizing the packaging to tell the story better. That's cool. 
Uh, I remember one time I was, uh, I was doing like a coffee tasting and I was like, this coffee tastes like crap. And they were like, it's earthy. And I'm like, that's dirt. Like, I don't know. I don't know what, what you think earthy tastes like, but I don't like this coffee. Anyway, that it just kind of reminded me of that. Like, like, I don't know what gravelly is, but you're right. It, it is intimidating as a, uh, a novice wine drinker. I do enjoy it, but I'm not, you know, I, I don't, I would not even come close to considering myself any sort of expert on it. Um, is that I do feel a little intimidated when somebody asks me to make a decision. And so having information for me is, is critical. And, you know, even to your point about the, you know, the, the democratization of the fine wine, it's not just the access to it, uh, but it's really lowering that intimidating sort of bar to be like, okay, I can trust this. I can trust this brand. I can trust that it's not going to be disappointing to my friends. Um, my, my last question around that is actually around packaging and cans. So how have you really navigated the, the difference between can is cheap and glass is good. I, I think that we've, we've sort of, we're kind of evolving into this world anyways um, with, with a lot of other sort of uh, with a lot of other beverages, but specifically with wine, cause I don't know, like, is the aluminum better? Like, does it help keep the wine better? Does it keep it fresher longer? Is it, is it, you know, like I, those are things that I don't know compared to a glass or, you know, even there's some, uh, you know, there's some like PET bottles that we're starting to see enter in. And um, so how, how does, number one, how have you navigated the like, this is a can of soda and I'm not paying, you know, whatever the price is, 10, 12, 13 bucks for a can of soda um, or a can of wine in this case. And then, and then, you know, what role does the, does the can play in sort of preserving the product? So I'm actually going to reverse the way that I answer that question. Because, Let's do it. I like um, it. It's, that's uh that, that would be, um, if you're a fan of hip hop music, uh, you, you went uh, Missy Elliott. If you remember the song, is it oh, worth yeah. it? Yeah. Let me work it. Flip it um, and so the wine industry is currently having this existential debate that the beer industry had about 20 years ago. So when craft beer first launched, like people, a lot of people were like, are you kidding me? I'll never drink a beer out of aluminum. That's cheap. Like, you yep. know, I only drink out of glass bottles and then look around. You can't give away glass bottles. In fact, we have breweries in New England that have gone out of business because they invested in a glass bottle line and not a canning line. Yep. Um, so in, to your point, in some ways, this debate over quality and can a good quality product come out of can is being answered for us in other areas and is bleeding into the wine industry. Right. But let's actually talk about wine itself. Um, so first of all, uh, wine and cans, we leverage a uh, specific uh, can and liner that is used specifically for wine. And that is to protect basically the aluminum from leaching into the wine. Mm -hmm. So just like you can't taste the aluminum in a beer, can of beer, you can't taste the aluminum in a can of wine. But the better question is like, just because you can put wine in a can, does it mean you should? And, and here is my case to those skeptics. Up until the 1970s, less than 1% of all wine that was produced in the world actually made it into a bottle. And that's because that wine was meant to be bottled aged. 
So here's a newsflash for a lot of people who don't realize this. Very few wines are actually meant to be aged. And it's not necessarily that if, you know, it's meant to be aged, it's better than something that isn't meant to be aged. It's just, again, another technique and style to achieve a taste that is ultimately subjective. So less than 1% of all wine. Now, what changed in the 1970s was that importers saw an opportunity to upsell Americans on lesser expensive or fresh wine. And by putting them in bottles, they could charge more. So the dynamic that they set up were that you paid more for the shipping and the packaging than the wine inside the bottle. This is bringing it all back, Reverend Peak. Like this is all about why packaging is so important, right? I know packaging is awesome. And it is, it is, that's funny that it is a, there's plenty of products out there that exist that I can tell you definitively, the packaging is more than the product. Like you are paying for the experience of the packaging and the product and the packaging is part of the product, right? So then let's talk about the experience really quick. So, uh, so anyway, once you kind of wrap your head around that, let's talk about the type of wine that everybody drinks. So 97% of all wine that's bought and sold in the United States today is drunk within 72 hours after purchase. So we are not bottle aging and it's less than two years old. Well, the interesting thing about cans and the benefit of cans and why the beer industry has embraced cans is because cans actually help preserve freshness. Mm -hmm. So uh, because you protect uh, from light and they're hermetically sealed, uh, you are really able to best, you know, preserve uh, a freshly made product. That is actually great for most of the wines that we all like to drink. Um, a really crisp, clean Sauvignon Blanc, uh, a delicious rosé that's meant to be drunk young, um, and even things like bubbly, right? So that just so that you can actually have an individual serving size of your glass of bubbly and you don't have to commit to drinking an entire bottle and then having it go flat on you. Right. So ultimately in my mind, if you are drink now, granted, if you're drinking a Bordeaux or Burgundy's and certain styles of red wine, you should absolutely continue to embrace bottles because that is the, uh, that's the best format for that wine. But most of the wine that we're all drinking, that's really good. Uh, well-made should actually, t- I would argue, taste better in cans. Yeah. And, and, you know, even the, you didn't, and I'm sure that this is part of the, the reason for cans is the transportability of that single serving in a can that I can now take if I'm going to go camping or if I'm going to go, you know, skiing, it's not like you can be on a, you can be at a ski resort and, you know, have a, crack open a bottle of really delicious wine because you're going to be like well we have to to your point like we got to finish this i I don't care how good those little stoppers are like once you pop that cork or taken off the screw cap or whatever it is that you're doing you know there's there's it's interacting with oxygen right like it's it's beginning that process and so i i love the idea of of the can for a lot of the reasons you were just mentioning you know the other one would just be the simplicity of the packaging. I'm not talking about the canning process because, you know, there's lines and stuff to your point that have to be sort of brought up to speed. But, um, you know, once, once we probably get out of the aluminum can allocation issue, which has been widely covered and I I think we'll, we'll emerge from here pretty soon. So when you can buy pre-decorated cans at the, at the levels that you need to, it's the can and then you have the, 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 the lid, right. It gets filled and it gets, it gets sealed and now it's done instead of like 
filled and you, you've got a cork and maybe you've got like a, a wax dip or something and you've got a couple of labels that you have to put on it. Um, you're, you're storing all these different SKUs of packaging in order to make the one, you know, the one bottle versus a can, which is it's a can, right? Like you have the can and, and that's, that's it, right? It's, it's a pretty, it, it's, and the lids are all going to fit the exact same size can. So you have one skew for the lids and you have your can skews from a supply chain perspective alone, not just ease of use for customer and what's best just from a supply chain issue. It's like, oh my gosh, this makes all the sense in the world um, to kind of, to kind of move past. And are your cans, are they like a half a bottle equivalent or? No, what's the size? it's just less. Okay. So your standard uh, pour at a restaurant is six ounces. So this is eight ounces. So Got think of all this a house pour. Got it. Got it. That's awesome. So an eight ounce can. Um, and uh, yeah, that's it. And it's just, it's it, like you said, not only for the restaurants, but also for consumers. It's like, I don't know how to pour. I don't know what a good pour of wine is. Like I just sort of pour it and I'm like, that looks good. I'm exactly. going to go ahead and drink that. And now it's like, I know. I can consume even more responsibly um, with with the can, and then and I know what to do with it, right? Like, I know to recycle cans. Do you? By the way, do your cans are are they all pre decorated, or are you did you have to resort to shrink sleeves or labels during during COVID? Well, we did do stickers, so uh, labels, uh, but we're actually now have all printed cans. Good. Um, yeah, it's also again better for the environment. It's more yeah. easy to recycle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those labels, I you know I. I spend most of my time in labels and shrink sleeves and I'm like, we need to get out of labeling cans as soon yeah. as we can, just from a, from an environmental standpoint, the labels are causing a lot of problems. Um, that's awesome. We are, uh, I told you this was going to go quick. Uh, we're here at the end of the interview. So, uh, Marion, it's been awesome. You've dropped a ton of incredible knowledge on, on the listeners, not from, a, not only from a packaging standpoint, but also just like the history of wine and, you know, the, the reasons why I think wine is so important, culturally speaking, and, and being able to understand history. I've learned a ton about that. So how, how would people, you know, maybe interact with, with you or, or even just go buy your wine? Uh, what would be some ways that they could get in touch with you? Yeah, so uh, we, you can always go on to www.archerroost.com and uh, order directly, have it shipped right to your home. We ship to every state, except if your state doesn't allow us to ship alcohol. Unfortunately, Utah is one of them. Come on, Utah. We got this. Governor Cox, let's go. Come on, State Assembly. You can change these rules. Yeah. And uh, the the next is uh, you can um, uh, you can also pick us up at uh, Wegmans and HEB and uh, more stores to come. So keep an eye out. Please follow us on Instagram and sign up for our newsletter. And uh We'll let you know when we've come to a wine store near you. That's so great. Well, Marion, it's been awesome. Thanks so much for spending some time with us and talking about packaging and wine. I think everyone's gonna 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 really have, has really enjoyed the episode, and hopefully, it'll you'll have more packaging people out there appreciating the the canned wines. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Adam. Have a good one. Please make sure that you like, share, subscribe. Let's spread the good news and the joy that packaging can be in the world. You can find this podcast anywhere that you listen to podcasts. We appreciate the ratings and the comments and the sharing. It's only going to keep getting bigger because packaging is awesome.